Well, let's open our Bibles again to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're looking today at preparation for spiritual battle. We'll begin the final phrase, the final paragraph rather, of this incredible letter that we've been studying for a few years now. And I think that this is right, really getting to the climax and the apex of his understanding of our life in Christ, our, the wealth of work and work of God in Christ, and how it applies to us in a spiritual battle in which we find ourselves. Let me read this paragraph just so that we have it fresh in our minds. Ephesians chapter 6, let me read beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert. With all perseverance and petition for all the saints. As we've been studying for some weeks now, the Apostle Paul takes the devil seriously. The Apostle Paul believes in the devil. And his instruction to the believers in our church, as well as the church at Ephesus to which he wrote this letter, was to do the same. Consequently, our belief in the Bible, our belief in the Bible as God's word, compels us and convinces us to believe in the devil, to believe in demons and demonic beings. We believe in the reality of the devil. We believe in the reality of demons, these fallen angels, because the Bible teaches and the Bible affirms their existence. The paragraph before us is clear that the devil and his henchmen, demons, which are all fallen angels, are living and powerful world forces of this darkness against whom we are fighting. They are spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And these dark beings are powerful forces that aim to steer you and me as lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christians, they aim to steer us away from Jesus, away from the gospel, away from the truthfulness of his word. Now, one of the things we learned a few weeks ago in our study of the devil and his biography biblically is that the devil is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. The devil is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at the same time. He's a, local, he's a fallen angel, a local entity. He can only be at one place at one time. Now, he may be fast and be able to get from one place to another pretty quick, but he can only be at one place at one time. But many times the Bible speaks of him as representative of the whole demonic administration. And I want to give myself a qualification here and, and you as well that sometimes in the coming weeks when we talk about the devil, we mean the devil and his angels and his demons. And sometimes we mean the devil specifically and we'll call him out when we get to those points. Now we understand this, uh, how we can speak of the devil as representative of his, of, his, uh, of his entire administration by how we speak of the president of our country. No, I'm not calling him the devil. I'll let you think about that. But we often talk about the president, and when we say the president, we mean his cabinet, his administration, his workers, 
his philosophy, his politics. So when we say the devil, we mean the devil and demons many times, and so does the Bible. So when we talk about the devil, oftentimes we're going to be referencing him and his minions and his henchmen, these demonic angels, these forces of darkness, as they're called. Now, so much has been said, uh, uh, so much can be said about the devil and demons because the Bible says a lot about them as well. However, there's only one place besides a few separate instances, resist the devil primarily and he will flee from you, that fully explains how you and I as believers are to deal with the devil, to deal with demons. And it's the paragraph we're looking at in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and following. As a Christian, you are in a fight, a battle, and a war against satanic beings who are against you, fighting you. They're after you. They want you. And if you're an unbeliever, they want to keep you. These beings aim to make you discontent and miserable. They're trying to make you tolerate sin, approve of sin, be entertained by sin, ultimately commit sin and love sin. And they're very precise in their aim. Now think about this for a minute. As far as we can tell in the scriptures, Satan and demons, or even angels for that, for that matter, there's no indication we have that they ever sleep or they ever take a nap. They seem to be awake all the time. Also, they've been tempting and luring people away from God and towards sin for thousands of years. They have the experience of observing billions and billions of people succumb to their temptations. They know what works and what doesn't work regarding temptation and the luring to sin. They long ago left inefficient ineffective strategies to get people to turn away from God. Let me get personal. The devil and his minions have studied you since the day you were born. They know where you're weak. They know where you're vulnerable. They know what tempts you and what lures you, and it's not the same for every person. If I were trying to diet and you were to tempt me, you could tempt me pretty easily by putting a big piece of chocolate cake in front of me or apple pie. If you wanted to tempt me and you put a big bowl of sautéed mushrooms in there, uh, in front, it would be no temptation. Those are from the devil. Those are, those are fungi. They're, uh, so I digress. Remember the words of John Owen that we've looked at several times in this study? Labor to know your own frame and your own temper. What spirit you are of, what associates in your heart Satan has. Where corruption is strong, where grace is weak, where stronghold lust has in your natural constitution and the like, end quote. So listen, make no mistake. I don't want to freak anybody out, but Satan knows you. He knows what makes you tick. Demons have watched you and are watching you right here in this moment. He knows your vulnerabilities. He knows what moves your heart, what breaks your heart, what woos your heart, what rules your heart, what lures your heart. He knows what tempts your heart specifically. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Pay attention. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But there's some really good news. John says in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world, the devil. So what are we to do about the devil and demons? How do we deal with them? Do we deal with them? What do we do about them? How do we think about the devil? How can we protect ourselves from his constant and fierce, unrelenting 
attacks? Well, Paul gives us the answer in the paragraph I just read to you. And in the coming weeks, we're going to unpack that. And it's going to take us a few weeks to get through this because it is so dense and rich with preparation and with help. Today, by the way, is going to only be the introduction because it's Paul's introduction. It's going to be both preparatory and also encouraging for studying the verses that follow. In the coming weeks, we're going to take each piece of this armor and break break it down individually. So we'll study them piece by piece. For today, we're going to be preparing with Paul and by Paul. So let's look together at five preparations for spiritual warfare. This is all these verses we're going to be looking at. The four verses are all preparatory. They're basically saying, get ready to put on the armor of God to do battle with the devil, with demons. Five preparations for spiritual warfare. The first is in verse 10. Access or access the necessary power. There's some power that you need for this battle. Access it. Get it. Finally. Now that word finally is the, means it's the last subject and the last paragraph of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And I think it's the climactic paragraph. He says, based on all the theology I've told you about understanding the good news of the gospel, all the theology I've told you about the Christian life and living it, know that you're under attack and here's how you win the battles. Finally. Next comes an odd imperative. An imperative is a command. It's an odd command. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of of his might. Three times in that little phrase, the word strength or power is used. Be strong in the Lord, or strength is used. Be strong in the Lord, the strength of his might. Strong, strength, might. Literally, be empowered. This is remarkable. It's very rare for the Bible to use the command, the imperative voice in relation to divine empowerment. You be powered by God's power. God alone gives his power. So how in the world can we understand this command? Maybe a good way to read this is seize his power. Fill yourself with God's power. Now you understand this by other verses that you know very well. Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. So the source of this strength is describing our reliance on his power. Look at the last phrase, his mighty power, the strength of his might or his mighty strength, his mighty power. Now he calls upon the believers at Ephesus and us to appropriate and apply this might that has already been explained, whether you remember it or not. He's already talked about this power, the source of this strength, and it's, it's wonderfully attached to Easter. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 19? Seems like about 10 years ago. What is the surpassing greatness? Think about this. Greatness of His power toward us who believe. So only believers can get the power of God in this battle against the devil. Power toward us and who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. These are the same words used in in Ephesians 6, which he brought about in Christ. How? When? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? That's the source of the power that he imparts with us. That's pretty powerful. What what kind of power do we have? Power to raise the dead. Power to be raised from the dead. It's incredible. Here's the point. Satan and his demonic army are far too powerful themselves to take on alone. They're far too powerful to be fought with Spells and incantations and admonitions and rebukes. I told you a few weeks ago, one of the 
one of the most frightening realities I can ever remember shocked me was when a, a friend of mine, it was a newly a new acquaintance of mine, uh, who was a believer, believed in the gospel, and said, let's get together and pray. And he said, let's pray. And his first thing he said after he said, let's pray, was, Satan, I bind you. And I just said, well, who are you praying to? I didn't know about this. Nothing in this passage tells us to talk to the devil, to talk to demons, to bind them, to cast them out of anything. In fact, as we're going to see, I don't want to be melodramatic, but there's nothing unique or special in this paragraph that's not normal, required, regulated Christian living. You access the power of God. Now, as we're going to see down later in the text, the offensive weapon that we have is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If you want to have the power of God, the only way to have the power of God is to know the work and the wealth of God, and the only places to find that is in your Bible. Yes, this is the read your Bible more point. You cannot have or experience or gain or understand or apply the power of God without regular understanding and application and bathing your mind in the Word of God. Much more to say about that in the coming weeks. Access the power of God that's necessary. You can't do this by yourself. You just can't stand up and command the devil and demons to do what you think they ought to do, which is, as we've noted before, is a little bit silly. I mean, for someone to bind Satan, who can only be at one place at one time, to say, we bind you, we tie you up. How does he get loose? How long is he tied up? What's he tied up with? Your words? Absolutely silly and uninformed. Second preparation for spiritual warfare is in verse 11 as well. Put on the complete protection. Put on the complete protection. As I said, this is just introductory because he's going to tell us exactly how to do that when we get into the individual pieces of armor. When a soldier is preparing for battle, what he wears anticipates the attacks he will face. If you don't think someone is going to swing for your head, you won't wear a helmet. If you don't think someone is not going to shoot an arrow at you, you won't have a shield. If you don't think you might be stabbed in the torso, you wouldn't have a breastplate. They're all preparatory. In fact, dressing in preparation for defense comes before fighting and going on the offense. There's a lot to say here because verses 14 to 18 will detail the donning, the putting on of this armor. So not a lot to say right here, a lot to say in the coming weeks on that. The word for armor, by the way, is interesting. It's a full set of armor. Tell me if you can find, uh, can figure out what English word comes from this Greek word. Panoplia. Panoply. The fullness. That's important. And the English picks up, take on the full armor of God. He could have said, put on the armor of God, but no. The full armor of God. Why? Because if you miss a piece, you're vulnerable where you didn't put that defensive piece on your body. This might shock you, but I was... I was a pretty small guy growing up. I was one of the shorter guys. I, I remember in, in the seventh grade, everyone was going out for football, so I went out for football. And uh, I made the team, and I think I was the last guy to make the team because they had the cut list, and my name was the last one. Um, and uh, the day came after, you know, two days, and you finally get, get to go in, and this is junior high. It wasn't really good stuff, but we, we got to get our pads. That was a cool day. I still remember the... The smell of that locker room where the pads were stored, and that's for another description. Maybe we're talking about the bowels of hell or something, but it was, it was awful. But I remember getting, I was one of the last guys who was on the smallest. All the starters got the cool stuff and the cool helmets. And the, I had the old, like, like Roger Staubach um, uh, uh, face mask. And, but I got my, 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 my pads, and they were giving me the stuff. You go to the place for your, your, uh, your pants and your pads and your shoulder pads and your helmet. And so I got my stuff, and... And then we had to put it on, and I, I put, my, put my pants on, my, my football pants. And they, they were so, they were the smallest pair they could find for me, but, but they were so big that I had to 
use athletic tape to tape them to keep them from falling down. And the hip pads were so big, they flared out and I looked like I had wings. Furthermore, the, the, if you know anything about football pants, they have thigh pads and knee pads. Well, my knee pads were ankle pads and my thigh pads kept me from running because they hit me in the knee. It was, they were just so big. I put on the, the, the uh, shoulder pads and I could just tick a tick a tick a tick a rattle them back and forth because they were so big and they were tightened as much as they could. And then I put on my helmet and I could take that helmet and spin it all the way around. And I thought, I hope I don't ever get hit in the head. We're about to go off for practice. And remember, I'm a seventh grader. I'm not the sharpest knife in the door or the smartest guy in the building. And so I said, hey, coach, my, my pants are too big. You, you mind if I just wear my jeans? And Coach Green said, Holland, you don't wear those pants. You can't be on the team. And so I remember, you know, running out and holding my pants up. His point was, if you don't wear the football pants, then you're not protected from the waist down. This is important. This is a part of being a football player. Paul is saying, put on the full armor. You can't leave any piece off. Whatever piece you leave off makes you vulnerable in that area and specifically in the areas that he's talking about spiritually that are important. Nothing should be left out. Nothing should be omitted. And we'll talk more about this as we go through each piece of the armor. But if you don't commit at the very beginning that you're going to put on the full spiritual armor of God that he provides, you are foolishly going into battle defenseless. Can you imagine? This is Sunday Many of you will go home today and watch some NFL games. Can you imagine an NFL player running out on the field without his helmet and saying, I don't need a helmet? Can you imagine a NASCAR driver saying, I might not crash. I'm not going to wear my crash helmet. Or a catcher sitting up behind the plate in a baseball game without his catcher's gear on, especially his mask. You say, that's foolish. It's foolish to go into spiritual battle without your armor on. Now, here's a, here's a hard question. This is tough for me because I thought about this all week. If this is so important, how deliberate are you, have I been, in putting on these pieces of armor to have adequate defenses against the onslaught of the devil and the demons? And my answer is not always and not very efficiently. So I hope we can do this better Together, Put on the complete protection. Save that. We're going to know what the complete protection is in the coming week. Number three, understand the adversary's tactics. Understand the adversary's tactics. There's a purpose clause in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that, why? You will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, Let's be clear, the devil and his demons have already been defeated. They were defeated at the cross. Genesis 3.15 talked about this long before Christ even became a babe in Bethlehem. I will put enmity, God says, between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed, your descendants. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. You will defeat the enemy through the coming Messiah and the army that's coming after him. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Listen to this. When he had disarmed, we'll come back to these words in a minute, rulers and authorities, those are demonic forces, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. They're already defeated, but they're working and ministering on borrowed time and trying to do as much damage as they can before they are ultimately consigned to hell. Still, these evil beings continue to oppose God's people. They oppose God's will. They oppose God's purposes. They oppose his word. He says, stand firm. When the verb stand firm, by the way, is used in a military sense, and this is the military context, 
It's the idea of holding a critical position while under attack. When we get down to the, the, the shoes of the gospel of peace, those are Roman shoes for battle, which were basically cleats. They were sandals with spikes in the bottom so that you could hold your position. When someone comes, you couldn't slip backwards. They had traction, they had grip. That's the same idea, stand firm. Notice, interestingly, stand firm is used three times in four verses. Verse 11, you will be able to stand firm against the wiles of the devil. Verse 13, Take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, what's the next word? Stand firm. Have traction. This is similar to what James meant when he said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist. Don't let him mow you over. Don't let him run you over. Have traction. Stand and resist. Now, let me highlight again that the command is not to cast Satan out of anything, to bind Satan, to cast demons out of anything. It's not even to speak to them. Stand and resist. And the individual pieces of the armor will, will tell us exactly how to do this. Now, specifically, this is what's interesting about this verse. Super interesting to me. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The old King James, I love it. The wiles of the devil. Schemes is a translation of a Greek word that you know well because we transliterated that into English and you'll understand exactly what Paul is talking about when I tell you the Greek word. Methodia, the methods, the strategies, his methods. Stand firm against his methods. By the way, the word carries the idea of craftiness, cunning, and deception. It's baked into it. Specifically, this word was used of animals who stalked their prey and ambushed them. That was their method, their strategy, their plan for attack. And the point here is that Satan's evil schemes, his methodia, his methods are built around stealth and deception and ambush. Satan would never give you fair warning. He would never tell a man struggling with lust, okay, tomorrow afternoon, Monday afternoon at 2.03 p.m., you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna see a woman and lust for her. So I want you to have this 24-hour this period to, to get ready for that. He would never tell someone struggling with materialism, tomorrow you're going to see someone who owns something that you would like to have and you're going to experience envy and jealousy and desire and materialism in that moment so you don't have 24 hours to prepare for that temptation. Oh, he wants to ambush us. Paul used the same word back in chapter 4, verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming, methodia. So what are his methods? What, what are the wiles of the devil? What are his schemes? In short, we know very much about his methods by noticing the descriptions of the defensive attributes of the armor because those are intended to protect us from his attack, his schemes, his methods. So when you look at the armor, you know his schemes, his methods. For example, the first is the belt of truth. Put on the belt of truth. Gird your loins with the belt of truth. Well, why would we need to be guarded by truth? Because he is a liar. He deceives the breastplate of righteousness. Why? Because he lures and tempts us to unrighteousness, to sin. Peace. Put sandals of peace, cleats of peace on your feet. Why? Because if he can keep us at odds with God, having no peace with God, which the gospel and justification brings, or at odds with others, then he's one. He loves disunity. The helmet of salvation. What does the helmet protect? 
your noggin, your head. What does your head do? Well, it controls your thinking. Now, you might say, well, how much did they understand then? Well, they understood a lot. Because in battle, they would see certain men, there's accounts of people taking a blow to the head and having a brain injury and not being the same afterwards, not thinking the same. So they understood that the helmet protects your thinking. So the helmet of salvation says that we should have protection against Satan's onslaught to make us think wrong things about salvation. We'll look at this in detail when we get there, that it's by works, that you can lose your salvation. A thousand attacks that he could give us to think wrongly about salvation. Then the spirit, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, that's our only offensive weapon. You cannot adequately know how to fight unrighteousness, unrighteous beings, unrighteous angels, unless you know the word of God. And then he closes it all up with prayer. We have to ask God for his help. A Christian, well, let me say it this way. A person who says they're a Christian and never prays is constantly admitting to himself or herself and to God that God is not needed in their walk. So ultimately, Satan's primary methodology is to use all those to keep people, men and women, young and old, from responding to the gospel by putting their faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.3, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing unbelievers, in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I don't know if you remember this. When we studied Mark, we, we looked at the several weeks at the parable of the sower. Jesus gives an extended illustration. It's the most extended illustration he ever gives and the most expl explanation about that parable he ever provides. He says in Mark 4, 3, there, the sower goes out to, seed, to sow seed and there's four different soils. He says the first one, listen to this, Jesus says, behold, the sower went out to sow as he was throwing seed, sowing seed, some fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it up. You say, oh, that's unfortunate. What does that mean? He tells us down in Mark 4, 15, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. He throws the word out, the gospel, the, the, the word of God. And when they hear, listen to this, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So he uses his schemes, his methods to keep people from understanding and believing the gospel. That's the first primary task he has. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3 told us that we are children of the devil as when we're born. We're we are bound to the prince of the power of the air, born in, as, as dead to God. Satan wants to keep as many people as he can from ever being resurrected from that state and believing the gospel. And his primary influence, as we said, is lying and deception. Revelation 12, 9 calls him the deceiver who leads the whole world astray. Eight, John 8, 44, Jesus says to the Pharisees there, you are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. And then he talks about the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because truth is not in him. Whenever he speaks, it's a lie. He speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. Add to that, Matthew 4, 3 and 1 Thessalonians 3, 5 call him the tempter. And these are only introductory thoughts. We'll learn more about the schemes of the devil when we understand the attributes attached to those armor pieces that tell us what the defenses are against his attacks. For now, until we get into those individual pieces, Randy Alcorn has a Helpful statement when he observes that Satan knows the price we will pay to sell out our spiritual values and principles. Alcorn writes this, quote, Satan works on the assumption that every person has a price. Often, unfortunately, he's right. Many people are willing to surrender themselves and their principles to whatever God will bring them the greatest short-term profit. End quote. That's a really good understanding of his schemes. 
If he can make us satisfied with sin in the present, he will convince us that righteousness over time, walking with God, is irrelevant and unhelpful. Number four. Fourth preparation for spiritual warfare. Identify the enemy's accomplices. we got to identify them, but let me just, full disclosure, we're not going to know a whole lot about them, but we do have to identify them. Four, verse 12, our struggle, literally our wrestling match, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I'll start with the word struggle. Paul calls our fight with the demonic realm, with Satan, a struggle. The word for struggle, pale, is is used of hand-to-hand combat, especially of wrestling. There is something to be said about shooting arrows from a distance, but ultimately a soldier had to be trained for hand-to-hand fighting in the Roman world. So our combat is, now this is interesting, it's hand-to-hand, that's the word, but not, look at the next phrase, with flesh and blood. So it's a hand-to-hand combat, but not in the material world. In other words, it's not with material beings we can perceive with our senses. It's with forces that are invisible and spiritual. The apostle similarly speaks of this warfare to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10, 3, for we walk in the flesh. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, of demonic strongholds. What are these powerful tools and weapons that God gives us? It's in the armor. It's in the armor. So this verse provides an interesting list, by the way, of supernatural powers, categories of demons. Now, Without any explanation, Paul lists them. And I'm going to be honest with you. I read several commentaries and articles and books this week that that went into all of these um, uh, lists of these demonic categories and has so many things to say about them without any Bible references. Paul just lists them. Had he wanted us to know a whole lot about them, he could have told us. But we can tell some things by simply the definitions of these words. It's interesting that these categories are listed but without any explanation, and we would be speculating to do much more than note what they mean by what they, how they're defined. For example, rulers. No doubt this reflects demons who rule other demons. They're leaders. It's linked with the term authority in Colossians 2.15. Demons who are in leadership over other demons. This means that these supernatural powers have organized structure against people of God and His purposes. They're organized. They're not lone rangers. They're working together. The next word is the powers. Another rank of demons mentioned in 1 Peter 3, 12. And this is important because he says, The powers means they have supernatural, beyond our fleshly uh, 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 power, they have supernatural powers to attack us. These are bad, bad, bad dudes. Look at this next one. World forces of this darkness. This probably refers to demons who have made their way into the world forces, political realms, governmental systems of the world. Their goal is to make entire societies follow Satan's realm of darkness and believe Satan's lies, not just at an individual level, but the entire world or the entire countries to think these things. We see this in Daniel 10, 13, that there were there were demons who were assigned to give influence in different territories in that time. Colossians 1.13 talks about the domain, the realm of darkness. Now, this is not hard to recognize. We can see this at a national level just in the last few years. Legalization of abortion from our government, legalization of homosexual marriage, 
promotion of transgenderism, dissolving of the differences between men and women, and on and on, coming from our government into our societal laws and norms. Paul says those are demonic. Those did not come from anything other than hell itself. The last one, he says, the spiritual forces of wickedness. This is the worst one. Forces of debauchery, of wickedness. These are possibly those demons who are involved in the most wretched and vile immoralities, such as extreme, perverse sexual practices, the occult, Satan worship, and even terrorism. Spiritual forces of heinousness, of wickedness. There are demonic forces at work to influence people to follow their wickedness. John MacArthur writes, Paul's purpose is not to explain the details of the demonic hierarchy here, but to give us some idea of its sophistication and of its power. We are pitted against an incredibly evil and potent enemy, but our need is not to specify, specifically recognize every feature of our adversary, but to turn to God, who is our powerful and trustworthy source of protection and victory. Paul is saying, these are bad beings that are after you and after God's purposes. You don't have to understand what to do with each individual. The, the armor will take care of that, but you do have to understand that they're powerful. This is beyond your will. This is beyond your ways. This is beyond your intuition and your willpower. Truth is that Satan and demons are at work all around us in our world and all around us attacking our very lives. I wish we possessed a device, a little electronic thing that we could hold in the air and say, there's a power, there's a force of darkness. There, but we don't have that. We just have some defensive armor and a sword of the Spirit to deal with these beings. So Paul takes the time to instruct us to always be on the alert and wearing our defensive armor. If we have a moment of neglect, we become vulnerable. but we stand in the confidence that greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world, these powerful beings. In Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell shall not overpower our Lord and his gospel. So we're going to identify more of the accomplices and more of the strategies and the methods with each piece of armor, but we understand this. These are bad beings, and they're after us, and we need a defense which brings us to the fifth preparation for spiritual warfare. Stand firm with armored resistance. Stand firm with armored resistance. Because of the enemy we know, because of his methods, because of the battle, therefore, based on what you know, take up, and he says it a second time, the panoply, the full armor, all of it, of God. Now we have a purpose clause. So that you will be able to resist the attacks in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. This is the introduction to the rest of the paragraph. Verse 13 is a summary of the call for preparation as well as an introduction to the following instructions to put on the armor. And notice that Paul calls believers to be prepared to resist in the evil day. What's the evil day? It's a specific day, the evil day. What is he talking about here? Well, I think he's saying that every day in our lives is lived in the context of Satan's evil dominion. But specifically, I think he's saying we should be ready for the specific times of intense, unexpected, unexpected spiritual battles. Paul would tell us, you need to be ready for Satan and the, and the demons to attack you, to lure you away from God, to lure you towards sin, specifically where you're vulnerable, specifically where you've neglected protection. Be ready. Take on the full armor so that when the evil day comes, you're not caught defenseless. 
think it's interesting. When Satan tempted Jesus in Luke 4, remember that he pulled him aside into the wilderness and tempted him. And the Lord passed that test. But listen to this. This is interesting. We, we learn something about Satan after, at the end of that temptation. Luke 4.13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him, left Jesus, until an opportune time. Satan and his demons are always looking for an opportune time when we're vulnerable. Dr. Honer comments, in brief, then, Paul exhorts the believers to take up the full armor of God in order to be able to stand in the evil day, always prepared for the vicious attacks that the devil will make at opportune times, end quote. Those are his opportune times. I mean, think about when your mind is more vulnerable to sin. Is it when you're tired? Is it when you're hungry? Is it when you're, you're distracted? Is it when you fill in the blank? Are we learning to recognize our windows of opportunity and vulnerability and set up defenses against them? James 4, 7. Listen to these paired together. Submit Therefore, to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Those, those go hand in glove. Following and submitting to God is congruent with resisting the devil and watching him flee. To resist is to be intentional, deliberate, and prepared. That's why Paul says, take up the full armor of God and then look at the last phrase. And having done everything, having put every piece on, everything, stand firm. You will not be able to stand firm if you are neglecting some part of the armor. This means that no piece can be left off. Stand firm with armored resistance. And that's just an introduction to what he's going to tell us now in the next verses. Now, as we've noted in the past few studies, it's easy to fall into one of two extremes when it comes to the domain of darkness. We can dismiss it, disbelieve it, or we can have an unhealthy obsession with Satan and his demonic forces. But the Bible clearly teaches that the devil and demon, demons are not only real, but they have incredible power in this world, and we should understand in the context of our defenses what they do. 1 John 5.19, listen to this. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air back in chapter 2, verse 2. But take heart, our Lord is more powerful. He has defeated the devil. We should never overlook the foe of our souls. He is fierce. He is aggressive. He is power, powerful. He is relentless. But our Lord is stronger and better still. He's a liar. But his deceptions are not easily recognized because he comes, according to 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, as an angel of light. He enters the church, Matthew 7, 15, as a wolf in sheep's clothing. By the way, that's a leader, not just a congregant. Sheep don't wear sheep's clothing. They already have it on. A wolf in sheep's clothing, the shepherd always wore the wool and the clothing of a sheep. So he enters in the church in false doctrine and in false, unaccountable, ungodly leadership. He twists God's word, making us ask with him, has God really said? And unless you and I have a firm commitment to the truth of the Bible, a working knowledge of God's word, what it says, we're going to be easily tricked and duped and led astray. One of the things we're going to notice in all of these elements of the armor is that one common theme is Satan and demons are always trying to make us doubt and be suspicious of the character of God, of his nature, of his disposition. And if he does so, then we will look, at, look for comfort 
and care and counsel in places other than the Bible, other than God. So if you're a believer, you woke up this morning in a battle. Before your feet touched the floor, the demonic realm was after you. And they still are today and will be this afternoon. God has said, I have defensive armor and strategies for you to be victorious over their attempt to lure you away from him, from me, and to lure you towards sin. Don't underestimate your enemy. Luther, we just sang it last week. Still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, armed with cruel hate. On earth, not his equal, not you and me. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And I love this, the third verse. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, and doesn't it? We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Amazing. Thomas Brooks, who's written so much about, Puritan, who's written so much about spiritual warfare, says this. Satan promises the best, but pays with the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. But God pays as he promises. All his payments are made in pure gold. I hope you understand the good news of the gospel. If not, Satan and his demons own you already. The deliverance comes from believing that Jesus crushed those powers and offers you hope and salvation and grace, and mercy, hope after death, eternity in heaven instead of hell, by believing that he sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sin, my sin, incredible, so that he could give us his righteousness, his perfection, incredible again. And after he was executed on that Roman cross, he didn't stay in the grave, but he rose from the dead, and the power that raised from the dead is ours for living lives of fullness and obedience, purpose and righteousness and happiness, fulfillment in him. If you want to know more about that, please don't leave, please don't leave the church today without talking to someone about that.